Today's scripture reading is Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Good morning. Let's go, come on, you can do better than that. There's more of you in here than the first service, and they were louder than you. Good morning. Hey, it's good to see you all. Um, to see many familiar faces and a lot of new ones as well. Uh, my name's Kai. I was a college student here and served as an intern for about three years. Um, it's getting longer and longer ago. I see some of your kids that I had in like Sunday school and now they're in junior high. And it's like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm getting old. And I'm sure you parents feel the same as well. Um, I'm just thankful to be here as they look over the past four years, a lot has changed here. Um, there's a lot of new faces. A lot of people have been sent out. People have moved. People have left. And there's a new staff. Um, but I've got to spend over the past several years because of my job and then just being in close proximity with my parents, living just down the road in Big Spring, spending a lot of time with your staff particularly. Let me just say you are immensely blessed. Um, I just You have men of the highest caliber who aren't just gifted and godly, but who are theologically driven, who love one another and love this church. Um, And working at Midwestern and working with a lot of churches, unfortunately, um, that's more rare than it should be. Um, So I just want to encourage you in, in three things is to pray for them, to listen to them, and then submit to their authority and leadership in your lives. All right, let's, let's dive in. So this past week, the world watched in horror as an explosion in, in Beirut, Lebanon, sent an entire country into chaos. I have a friend who's one of his mentors is a pastor that was the closest evangelical church to the blast, and just hearing him recount the devastation in Lebanon and Beirut uh, is incredible, um, the, the loss of life and the absolute destruction. Several days ago, I read an article that was titled this, Nigeria is a killing field of defenseless Christians. And that article recounted the fact that over the past five years, 
Almost 12,000 Christians have been murdered and almost 5 million have been displaced. This world is filled with suffering and injustice. That's familiar to us if we think about the past several months. We've seen murder videos on cell phones. We've seen unjust acts upon public service. We've seen riots in the streets. We've seen people pass and die in fear spread across the world because of the coronavirus. I have a question for us this morning. When we're faced with these things, either outside us in our lives, in the world around us, or in our lives, how do you respond? On a more personal note, when the months of infertility turn to years, when a wayward child or spouse continue to run into the open arms of their sin, or when the medical diagnosis is bleak, how do you respond? Where do you run? How do you act? And we don't have to tiptoe around these questions because the scriptures don't tiptoe around them. That the scriptures aren't desensitized to the suffering and evil and injustice that exist in our world. God is not unaware of the reality of this life. In our text this morning, Psalm 77 is a psalm of lament. And the psalm shows us how as Christians we should respond to the injustice and suffering that we see in the world around us and we experience in our own lives. Mark Vrogop, a pastor in Indianapolis, he he defines um, biblical lament better than anyone I could find. He has a very helpful book on lament. um, And this is what he says about lament. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It's the way Christians praise God through their sorrows. Lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. Over one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament. And this morning, we're going to work through this psalm together, and we're going to see how we can practice lament in our lives and in the life of the church. Before we do that, let's pray together and ask the Lord for his help this morning. Father, we come to you and we just express our utter dependence upon you. Um, We are in need of your spirit to open our eyes to your word. We know that apart from the work of the spirit, um, that we will not leave here changed. So, Father, our plea to you is that we don't want to be like the man in James who looked in the mirror and then as he turned away, he forgot what he looked like. Father, we don't want to just be hearers of your word. We want to be doers and lovers of it as well. So as we examine your word by the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes to our sin and to the mercies that we have in Christ? It's in his name that we pray, amen. I'll tell you a story about two people. Now, neither of these people are in here, these fictional um, characters, but the first is Bob. Bob was always on time to work. He worked for the same employer for 15 years, never causing any trouble. And then one Friday, Bob was called into his supervisor's office and informed that he was being let go. As Bob drove home from work that evening, his heart hardened. Why do I deserve this, Bob asked. I gave them everything I had for 15 years and this is what I get? Months passed by and Bob was still without work despite his best efforts. When Bob's church family asked him how he was doing, he simply said he was fine, brushing off their questions of concern. 
as his family's financial situation began to worsen, the church approached Bob and offered to provide financial assistance. And Bob immediately turned them away. He wanted no help. He was determined to provide his family without any assistance. How could God do this to me? Bob asked. I will do this on my own without any help. Second person is, is Wilma. And Wilma had just been diagnosed with a chronic disease. She was devastated and scared. She expressed her despair to anyone that would listen. As the months wore on, Wilma continued to wallow in her despair and self-pity. People began to avoid her because she turned every conversation back to herself, her suffering, and just absolutely unloaded on them. She refused to be comforted by her pastors and her fellow church members. Wilma was caught in a perpetual state of despair and selfishness. Why did this happen to me? Wilma asked. Nothing good can come of this. And these are fictional stories. They're not about anyone in this room. But they represent two wrong common responses to suffering. And Psalm 77 is going to inform us and show us a better, a biblical way to respond. And that way is the way of lament. So our main idea this morning is that lament enables us to live by faith in times of trouble. Lament enables us to live by faith in times of trouble. So every psalm of lament has four essential elements. We're going to see the first element here in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. So the first element of lament is we turn to God. We turn to God in prayer. That's what the psalmist does here immediately. In the midst of his suffering and doubt, he turns to God in prayer. Gone are all pretenses of self-sufficiency. Think back to the examples of Bob and Wilma. Their response to their suffering is the exact opposite of the psalmist here. Biblical lament begins by us humbly turning to the Lord in prayer. And then in verses two and three, we see the author begin to describe his situation. He sought the Lord. He's refused to sleep. He's been so desperate to find God. He's pleaded with him. And all his effort, all his pleading has been met with absolute silence. It's as if his prayers haven't even penetrated the ceiling of his home, let alone the throne room of heaven. And he's brought to an end of himself. Doubt reigns in his heart. Friends, when suffering enters our lives, we find ourselves asking many questions. But two of the most common questions and the questions that underlie much of our suffering are this. Is God really good and is God really for me? Certainly, this is what the psalmist is asking himself. He's saying, I've searched for you countless nights for you, God, and I haven't found you. Surely, if you were for me, you would answer me. Surely, if you're good, you would answer. Where are you? He's at an end of himself. His efforts have exhausted him, and he's had no results. And the only option that remains for him is to turn to God and express his troubles, his doubts, his emotions to the Lord. 
And this is the second element of biblical lament, an expression of emotion or complaint. Look at verses four through six with me here. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn me forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Look at the the emotions here the psalmist expresses. Despair, doubt, anger, fear, sorrow. Verse four tells us he's so distraught that he can't even speak at this point. When he thinks back to the times of joy in his life, They don't bring him happiness. They're not fond memories. They bring him sorrow. It's if he's looking back on his life through the opposite side end of a pair of binoculars. Everything, all the joy, all the happiness, the peace seems so far away that it feels like it was a part of a different life altogether. And these memories bring him pain and suffering. It's as if all that lies ahead of him is more pain and suffering. Remember wallowing Wilma. This is what Wilma got right. She recognized the weight of her suffering and her inability to relieve or end her suffering. She sees the world clearly in this regard, but what she doesn't do is turn to God and express her emotion to him and trust him. She wallows in her self-pity. And Bob responds in a completely different way. Bob refuses to admit that he feels anything. He hardens his heart to the troubles of his life. And he he feels when, when he does this, when we do this, when we harden our hearts in this way, It's an attempt to to gain control. Bob and you and I, when we respond this way, feel like if we can suppress our emotion that somehow we regain control of our lives when in fact we are not in control of our lives. Friends, there's many other wrong responses to suffering, but you and I are no different than Bob and Wilma. These responses and others, they, they characterize our lives. It's okay for us to express our sorrow and our doubt and our questions to God. It's biblical. It's here. Over one-third of the psalms are psalms of lament. And an absence of emotion in the midst of suffering is not a mark of Christian maturity. In fact, the scriptures show us and teach us that expressing our pain, our emotion, our doubt, our questions to God is both mature and biblical. These experiences are a reality of the broken world that we live in. We don't have to pretend like things are happy and okay and fun and peaceful all the time because in reality, they are not. And from this expression, we see in verses seven to nine, the psalmist asks several questions. Will the Lord spurn me forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? 
Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Because these questions are riddled with doubt. This man is wrestling what he knows to be true about God and what he has felt and what he has experienced. And these questions, they're not off limits to us. God wants us to express these things to him and ask these things of him. God included these psalms, the psalms of lament, and this book, his word, because he knew that each and every one of us would be asking some some variation of these questions in our lives. There will be some moment, some season of suffering or loss where we will find ourselves asking similar questions to this. That's why they are here. And look closer at these questions with me. Something deeper is going on. These questions question the very character of God, faithful love, favor, mercy, and compassion. These are things that characterize God's covenant relationship with his people in the Old Testament. The psalmist is questioning the very character of God and his commitment to his covenant. And he has a deeper purpose here. That's why he asked these questions in rapid fire format. We see bang, 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 one after another. He's doing this because he's prodding God to act. He's calling God to action. And calling God to act or calling him to action to bring about some sort of change is the third element of biblical lament. So element three of biblical lament is ask We ask God to bring about an end of suffering and injustice, to bring peace. And it's not ungodly or wrong for for us to ask God to do so. Every psalm of lament contains some element of the psalmist petitioning God, asking him to bring about change, to bring about justice, to bring about relief. When we see a friend suffering, when we experience suffering in our own life or in the world around us, we should run to the Lord and lament and ask him to bring about peace, to bring about change. And think about Bob and Wilma and their response to their suffering. Neither of them run to God and ask for help. Wilma is so focused on her own suffering that she refuses to recognize God as God and while Bob refuses to even acknowledge God. Both are completely focused on their current circumstances. And friends, suffering tempts us to focus on ourselves unlike anything else in this life, I'm convinced. Look at the first 12 verses, particularly the verse nine. They're riddled with eyes and me's. And then in verse 10, there's, there's a shift in the tone of the psalm. Read that verse with me here. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. So when we read this, alarm bells should be going off in our heads. Then I said, then, so that's a transition and it's preceded by a selah, indicating that there's some shift that's occurring in the psalm. And in the final 10 verses here, 11 through 20, the psalmist shifts his focus from his feelings and suffering to the work and character of God. That's the the final element 
of biblical lament is praise. We pray the things of God back to God. By doing this, we remind ourselves of his character and work. Read these verses with me, 11 through 20. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Look, for the rest of the psalm, the eyes and me's are gone. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I chose this psalm of lament over all the others because it's a little bit different than most of them. And the prayer of praise at the end is significantly longer than many of them. And it has two really essential elements to praise in the the context of lament. The first we see in verses 11 through 15. And the psalmist specifically appeals to God's character and then just more of a 10,000 foot view of God's work both in his life and then more broadly in the world around him. And we see in these verses that the psalmist, he's fighting to align his heart with the truths of God's word. He sets his mind and heart on the character of God here at the end. And the in these moments, the author is choosing to trust God despite God's silence. Friends, when we lament, when we, when we praise God, we should say, God, I know that you're good. I know that you keep no good thing from your children. But right now, my circumstances and, and feelings and what I see is far from that. So help me to trust you. Help me to praise you. And in lament, We should express specific ways that God has provided for us how he's answered prayers. One of my favorite professors in seminary, he and his wife um, have each one of his classes over to his home every semester for for dessert and we hang out um, and just talk with them and it's great. And at the foot of their fireplace, they have a bucket full of rocks and they're about this big and each one has a number on them. And the number corresponds with a journal that they have, several now. And each number goes with a prayer request, and then next to that prayer request is an answer. They have quite a few of these. They've taken them from Estes Park, Colorado, so I'm pretty sure he could probably get arrested for the number of rocks he's taken from a state or national park. Like They have like five or six at least buckets of these things, so there's a lot. And what they do when they have family worship is they pull a couple of those rocks out, and they look at them, And then they look up the numbers in their journals and they just praise and thank God for what he's done. Friends, there are many buckets, many. I encourage you when darkness and suffering come, when difficulty is here 
in your life. Praise God for what he's done. And now, in these moments, maybe you're not in the midst of suffering, begin to build in ways to your family life, rhythms to your family life and family worship where you write down prayer requests and then you praise and thank God and see how he's answered them. This practice will serve you well in times of trouble. Then in verse 16, the focus shifts one more time. The psalmist in the last five verses here, he specifically focuses on God's redemptive work in the Exodus. So the Exodus, God rescued his people from slavery from Egypt by parting the Red Sea, leading them out, then allowing the waters to crash over the pursuing army. Not only that, he gave Israel the law, establishing them as his people. And at this point in biblical history, where the psalmist is writing, that was the single greatest act of redemption the people of God had experienced. There's no greater example of God's love his provision, and his presence in the Old Testament than in the Exodus. The psalmist looks back to the work of God, specifically his salvific, redemptive work, and he finds assurance and hope even though God has not relieved his suffering. This is the beauty of lament. That's why it ends in praise. That's why lament is uniquely Christian. As the author is praising God before relief has come. He's trusting God even though his circumstances have not changed. This is what lament enables us to do. Friends, we have a far greater assurance than the psalmist does. We have experienced and seen and witnessed and read about the single greatest redemptive act in the entire history of the world, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. See, Christ came was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that you and I could not live, then he died the death that you and I deserved because of our sin and rebellion against God. Not only did he die that death, he rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death, and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Friends, this is the greatest source of assurance for you as a Christian. The work of the Lord Jesus is objective. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 tells us that. It says the record of debt has been paid. This legal language, and God uses legal language through Paul in that verse to show us that the work of Jesus is objective and it is fixed and it cannot be undone. It's accomplished. Legally, you and I are blameless. We are spotless. When God looks at us, he sees the righteous works of Jesus. It's the sound of God's gavel of justice has rung throughout eternity, declaring all who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus alone for salvation are forgiven. Friends, when suffering and sorrow enter your life, you will be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. And in those moments, look to the cross. God's love for you does not shift or change. It is fixed and secured. What the blood of Jesus secured for you and I, no man, no scheme, no plan, no enemy can undo. The reality for some of you in this room is that you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. You, you don't have hope. And quite honestly, this life is the closest taste of heaven you will get. 
If that's not you, if you haven't turned from your sin, trusted in Christ, if you don't have hope, well, myself or one of the pastors or elders here would love to talk with you at the end of the service about the gospel, about Jesus, about this hope. As we close, remember with me the four elements of biblical lament. We turn to God in prayer. We express our emotion to him or we complain. And we ask him to act, to bring about change. We petition him and then we praise him for his character, for his work, for his goodness. As Mark Rogop said, Lament is the pathway to praise when life gets hard. As we close, a couple of encouragements for you. When life gets hard, when suffering enters your life, when you see injustice in the world around you, run to the Lord and lament. When you see a brother or sister suffering, run to them and lament alongside them. Oftentimes when we see a friend experiencing suffering, we we feel awkward like we have to have the answers. When quite honestly, friends, this side of heaven, we will not have an answer for every bit of darkness someone experiences. We will know all the whys and see all the ways God is using our suffering for his glory and for our good. And lament is not some magic bullet that immediately removes our suffering and sorrows. Our days of lament may turn to months and months to years. But the reason lament begins and ends with God is because knowing God is all that we need. God is the answer to our questions. He is the solution to our sorrows. He is the salve for our suffering. Knowing and loving God is the single greatest gift you and I could ever be given. One Christian said this of God. It's attributed to Charles Spurgeon, and I did some homework, and it's not, unfortunately. Um, But this is what it says of God. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, We must trust his heart. So friends, when when trials come, run to the Lord and lament. Cry out to the one who knows you and loves you and then choose to live by faith, trusting that one day your faith will be made sight. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in humility We are aware of our sin and our insufficiencies. God, and we just express anger and worry and fear when we consider the injustice in our country and around the world, Father. We consider the thousands of Christians over the past five years being killed in Nigeria alone. And we express our sorrow and grief over seeing friends and family members uh, plagued by the virus, some of them dying. God, and we ask how long? How long will you let injustice reign? How long will you let division in this world exist? How long will you allow your church to be persecuted, Father? We are tired and we are weary. Father, we ask you to bring about relief. 
Would you establish governments that wield a sword in the way that honors you? Would you bring about a vaccine or a cure for the coronavirus that would bring relief to those? God, would you allow us to return to some semblance of normal? Father, how long? But but this we know, that you are good, that your ways are perfect. Father, we praise you for your kindness that as we look from Genesis to Revelation, we see your hand in, in sending Christ. We praise you for him, for his coming, for his living, for his dying, and for his resurrection. God, he truly is the second Adam, the greater Adam, the one who was promised to us, and we praise you that we know him. So God, in the moments and days where it is difficult to trust you, help us. God, we thank you and we love you. It's your name we pray, amen.